Amen. So it's, uh, it's back to school time. I've got three kids that went back to school on Monday. My youngest, Asa, he starts preschool tomorrow. Very exciting. Um, and I, I, I had this little, I had this little, this little weird little thought experiment that ended up turning into, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to foist it on you right now. Um, I, I, th- I thought to myself, okay, imagine, just imagine with me. You're not doing back-to-school night, first-day-of-school stuff with your kids in the year 2022, but rather, just imagine you are an ancient Jewish little boy or girl, and you live, let's just say you live just south of the city of Rome in the country we would now call Italy, but at that time would have simply been part of the ancient Roman Empire. And as a little Jewish boy or girl, it's time for you to go back to school. You don't, you don't go and buy spiral notebooks and crayons and markers. You, I'll be honest, I don't, actually don't know what you do, but just imagine, all right, are you with me? So we're, we're let's just say it's, it's the late first century AD. You're living in the ancient Roman Empire. You are a Jewish family, but you're one of the Jewish families who has heard about and come to believe that this guy named Jesus wasn't just yet another rabbi, but he was actually the Messiah, God's anointed one, come to fulfill all the law and the prophets taught. Okay, so you with me? Have have you fully gotten into character? You can feel, okay, thank you, Eric's with me. I see you in in the zone. Now, I don't know what your first day of school would have looked like. I don't know. I wasn't there. I've actually read a number of sources on ancient Jewish education. None of them told me about the first day of school. But let's just imagine, right? You show up, and pretty soon in the day, it's your favorite time, Torah time. It's a lot like circle time, except you sit in a circle and you hear stories about Torah. So you're all the kids, and I'm the teacher, and it's your first day of school, and it's Torah time. This is kind of fun, right? All right. All right, kids, today, today, I want to tell you one of the great stories of our faith. The story of Moses speaking to God on Mount Sinai. Do you guys remember the story? Yes, teacher. Here's how the story goes. God made a promise to Abraham, right? You guys all know the song, Father Abraham, right? God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And sure enough, even though it was unexpected, God made good on his promise. And Abraham had a son who had some sons who turned into a great nation. That's our people, Israel. And the the Israelites were flourishing in a land known as Egypt. But unfortunately, as you recall, the Egyptians, who were once friends with us, they turned on us. They started to treat us badly, and they eventually started to enslave us. Well, we cried out to our God and said, God, how is this happening? And the God who promised to make us a a great nation, he heard that cry, and he said, yes, I will come. And God freed us from slavery. And then there was this dicey little moment where right after we got freed, we got stuck at the Red Sea, and we threw up our arms. We were like, really? You took us out of slavery, so we die at the Red Sea? But then God saved us a second time. We've just been freed from slavery, and now that God has given us 
our freedom, we're out in the desert. A giant nation, newly freed, and we looked around and said to ourselves, what in the world are we supposed to do now? We don't have any bathrooms. We don't have any livestock. We got a little bit of livestock. We don't have any agricultural development. We don't have a law or judicial system to follow. We don't have anything in place. Yes, we've been freed from oppression, but suddenly we're just wandering around in chaos in the desert. And that's where we get to our story for the day. Because yet again, God heard our cry and our frustration, and God saw us. And he said he would not just make us many people, he would make us a great nation. And we gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and something incredible happened. Moses, the greatest of all the prophets, Moses climbed up Mount Sinai, and with all of the nation watching, there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there were earthquakes, and Moses spoke to God. And God spoke to Moses. But this is the sad part of the story, kids. The fireworks display on Mount Sinai was pretty awesome. But apparently, we were pretty distractible people. Because while we were standing there watching it happen, we lost interest. And instead of watching the glorious lights of God from up on top of the mountain, we built a little calf out of gold, and we looked at the light of that calf instead. After Moses had finished his conversation with God, he started coming back down the mountain, and he was carrying stone tablets with the words of God written on them, but when Moses came down and saw us throwing a party, worshiping the golden altar, and ignoring our God, he got a little upset. And he took the stone tablets, and he threw them down and shattered them right in front of us. Which meant God had to go, or Moses had to go back up to God and be like, did you have a backup in the cloud? Because I really hope you did. Yeah, see? I was really excited about that joke. (laughs) Sorry, somebody after the first service, I said, Moses came down and saw us partying and said, holy cow, And he said, did you mean that on purpose? Like, holy. And I didn't. And then I remembered that he told me, so now I'm telling you. Okay. Back in character. Back in character. Ah, what happened? Moses went back up, got another set of the tablets, talked to God. And then when Moses came down, in a sense, the climactic moment of the story, Moses comes back down holding the new set of tablets. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 34. The text says, And after speaking with God, because he was in God's presence, Moses' face shone brightly. It radiated a light that was so bright that when the people saw it, they literally were in fear. And they backed away from Moses, not knowing what to do. Now, at this point, the teacher might go into all sorts of different ways. They might talk about uh, one of the classic debates, uh, if you read ancient Jewish rabbis, about whether or not Moses talked to God himself or talked to one of God's angels, maybe the greatest of all angelic messengers. Um, There's debates about whether or not the radiating light of Moses' face was meant to uh, uh, contrast the light of the golden calf statue. But one thing is certainly true. In this story, radiance 
reveals God-given authority. And certainly, many, many Jewish teachers throughout the generations would say the same light of God's authority that shone from Moses' face is what we can have when we study Torah. And so we are going to read Torah together. We're going to memorize Torah. We're going to study the words that God gave to his people so that just like Moses' face shone with a radiating light, our face might also shine with that same light of what God has given us. Now again, I don't know if that's what the first day of school looks like. I don't know if the stories were told that way, but here's what I do know. If I was a Jewish Jesus follower in the first century, the stories in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, those stories would have been a daily part of my education for all children. They would have been a daily part of my prayer life and worship life as a society. And it would have been my work as a faithful Jew now following Christ to answer the questions about how my Jewish heritage is now lived out in my Christian faith. And I say that all because the fact of the matter is for us, for us, um, to my knowledge, none of us grew up steeped in a Jewish faith heritage. We grew up hearing some of the same Bible stories, but in a wildly different cultural context. But we're about to read a letter in our New Testament called the Letter to the Hebrews. And you know why it's called the Letter to the Hebrews? Because it was written to a bunch of Jewish people, also known as Hebrews. See? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a trick there. It's written to a bunch of people whose religious and ethnic background is deeply informed by the Jewish faith, including one of the most central stories, the stories of the Exodus, which has a pinnacle moment where Moses meets with God at Mount Sinai. So Moses meets with God at Mount Sinai. God's word causes Moses' face to radiate God goes on to make more promises about a land that Israel will inherit. And this happens either directly through God or through some sort of incredibly powerful angelic messenger. Imagine that you'd been raised hearing that story time and time again, hearing that uh, taught in churches, taught by rabbis, and then one day a pastor writes a letter to you and your family and your Christian community living on the outskirts of Rome in Italy. And that letter opens with these words. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses and see if there's any words or images or ideas that sound familiar to you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Pray again with me quick. God, as we began a journey of reading through some of your words from Scripture, the book of Hebrews, help us to be people who look up, who are attentive, not to my words, not to what I have to say, not to the words of the world around us, but rather attentive to you, our God. May your words be where we daily look in our lives. Amen. Here's what I think. I think when the first congregation that read these words heard what the author had to write, they would have immediately remembered the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. And it would have been mind-blowing to them to hear this author say that Jesus doesn't just radiate from God's words. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he sustains all things by his, not God's, by his powerful word. This would have been a profound statement of Christian faith to those people at that time. And I want to explore it a little more with a hope that, just like these words were encouraging to their first audience, I think they might be encouraging to us as well. And I'm going to look at three parts of the passage. In the past, exact representation, and in heaven. So, first of all, the author starts, the very first words in English say, in the past. That wasn't the first word in the original Greek, but uh, in the past comes at the the very front of this opening phrase. And the author is intentionally trying to acknowledge, I get that I'm talking to Jewish Christian people. I get it. And, And I get that for us, our history really matters to us. And here's what we know to be true of pretty much all ancient Jewish people, and continuing to be true of of a lot of people in Jewish faith today. Um, The first congregation reading the letters to the Hebrews, they had most, if not all, of the Torah committed to memory. That was pretty standard practice in ancient Jewish education. I've actually thought to myself, maybe we should make that kind of the core of our ministry plan here, is just, if you're going to be part of this church, step one. Commit the first five books of the Bible to memory. Really not that big of a deal, right? We should be able to get this done. Anybody? Anybody want to? No? All right. They didn't have Siri or Alexa or Google to help them, you know, pull up anything they needed anytime. They were an oral society. And so committing things to memory was the way of retaining and passing along information. And not only did they have the Torah committed to memory, but this community was intimately familiar with the entire Hebrew scriptures. And so the author, who as far as we know, we don't know exactly who wrote it. We've got some good guesses. It might have been Barnabas. It might have been Paul. uh, It might have been Priscilla and Aquila. Any one of them would be good guesses. These are all biblical authorities that uh, could have written it. We just don't know who actually wrote it. But it is a person writing in the, in the, uh, as a pastor to this community wanting to help them connect their Jewish heritage with their Christian faith. And in that desire to connect their past with their presence, they say this about Jesus. They say the Son is the radiance 
of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Moses heard God's word and therefore his face radiated. Jesus is the word of God and Jesus is the radiance. How much greater is this Jesus? The author or the pastor uses this phrase. He is the exact representation. Um, This phrase is one of many that that has brought up in in Christian thinking, especially, um, broadly speaking, speaking, evangelical Christian thought. Using evangelical, of course, not as an exit poll term, but rather as a movement within the history of church uh, that has some core theological statements holding it together. One of the core beliefs in a lot of evangelicalism, uh, here we go, vocabulary word, is what we call Christocentrism. Everybody repeat after me. Christocentrism. It's a good word. Students in the room, if you want a $5 word and use it in your next paper, just kind of get Christocentrism in one of your essays for school and it's going to be great. All right? Permission granted. I'm looking, looking over here. I'm looking over there. We've got some students. All right? Um, when we talk about Jesus being the exact representation, we have to acknowledge something. This audience that Jesus is writing to has been faithfully committed to the Torah forever. If Jesus is the exact representation, what that means, what I believe it means is now we have to take Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and that becomes the primary lens through which we read and interpret all of the rest of Scripture. Everything before Christ was leading up to Christ, and everything after Christ is about the kingdom which Christ came to establish. So Christ is the center of Scripture, and therefore Christ is the way we must interpret everything. Let me give you a little example. When Moses came down, he had the tablets, he had the Ten Commandments, but he also had an extensive law code, hundreds hundreds of different laws, talking about everything literally from like sanitation, how far away from the camp do you need to dig the hole before you do your business? It's in there. It's biblical, right? Law codes about justice. What types of crimes deserve what types of punishments? There's law codes about what do you do when mold is growing in your house? I reference you to the book of Leviticus for some fun dinnertime family devotions. Here's a law um, found in Exodus in the Sinai narrative, um, the end of which will have some familiar words that you've heard before. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, or as we have appropriately consolidated that, eye for an eye. It would be a little cumbersome if we said the whole list every time, so we just say eye for an eye. Now, a lot of modern readers read this part of the law, and we go, because there's other parts of the law that literally says eye for an eye, like if somebody gouges out your eye, you get to gouge theirs back out again. And we're like, 
Really? Like, is that, isn't that a little barbaric? Can we? The thing that we need to remember is, at this time in history, when these words were written down, the idea of equal and equitable consequences for crimes was quite new. If you want, you can actually go read some other ancient law codes. Go to the Google and type in the law code of Hammurabi, two M's in that one. And you can read all 219 of his laws. And one of the things you'll notice is when Hammurabi diff- talks about pun- crimes and punishment, he says things like, well, if the injury happens to a man, you're going to have to pay a whole lot of money. If it happens to a woman or a child, nah, not as much money. If it happens to a slave, you really, you know, just a couple pennies will do. Any unequal treatment of different people was kind of the assumed standard in ancient worlds. And so for our Jewish law to then say, no, 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 it must be always equal and fair, and to write that down specifically in many ways was a breathtakingly beautiful new step forward in the history of justice. And here's the point of that all. The law was a beautiful expression of justice. It can be hard and cumbersome for us to read it today, but even people today look back at it and go, that was paradigm shifting for the ancient world. And as we've talked about many different times, we little, did a little mini-series on justice in the middle of the summer sermon series. Justice revealed the goodness of God. This was a God who believed all people were equal and wanted to ensure that equal treatment, difficult though it was, over the ages. And this was something, this was a belief near and dear to the hearts of all Jewish people. And this pastor, writing a letter to his congregation, in a sense preaching a sermon to his congregation through a letter, has the audacity to say that all of that, all of the Torah, was not the exact representation of God. In fact, Jesus himself said it. He said, I didn't come to abolish or get rid of or or even drop a single dot on a single I on any part of the law, but rather, I have come to complete it and fulfill it. Because the problem with all these laws is we can get so easily dragged down into legalism and forget the point of the law is the people it protects. And Jesus would go on to say some radical new things. He said, actually, I don't want you to just get even with your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. I don't want you to pray just for your friends. I want you to pray even for those who persecute you. Jesus said, if you're ever fuzzy, if you're ever like, what should I do in this situation? I didn't find a law code to explain the right choice here. I'm a little confused on the next steps and, and how to do rightly or do good. Jesus said, I'll make it really simple. Just look at my life, my teaching, my death, my resurrection. All right, got it? Look at that. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In a sense, in this specific example, Christ came to say, and and the pastor is reminding them, justice matters deeply to God, but redemption and restoration are God's ultimate purposes. So it is with us. There's a lot of good things in our lives that if we forget that Christ is the center of it, even good things in our lives, even, even good, true, right principles we adhere to can 
become less than what we see when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And the author gives us a final image. He says, Christ is higher than everything else, higher than even that angel that was on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, higher than, higher than Sinai. Thank you. Christ is seated in heaven. Now, when the pastor writes this, um, they're, they're acknowledging uh, what was a pretty commonly held worldview at that time. Um, some people have called it a three-tiered worldview. Here's the way the world works. Um, we are here. We're on earth, and we're kind of in the middle tier. But if we could, the ancients say, if we could look far enough up, we think we might actually see heaven. Like there might actually be some gates made out of pearly white stuff. And it's up there. And if we could look deep enough into the earth, that's where you will find hell or death or Hades or darkness. Well, I mean, that worldview makes sense when you don't have telescopes or you don't have super deep well drilling machines. But spoiler alert, we've actually looked pretty far up into the heavens. And to date, to my knowledge, we haven't seen any pearly gates. We've seen beautiful heavenly things, but we haven't like, we haven't seen something. We've also dug pretty deep into the earth. Uh, I went on a really wild tangent on super deep boreholes, and they're trying to make it all the way through the, the crust of the earth into the mantle. They haven't made it yet. Oh, someday we might make it. Um, but the point being, if I were to go out and, and talk to a, any modern person, most people in our modern world do not hold this same three-tiered worldview. People don't think if our telescopes see far enough, we're suddenly going like, to stumble upon some building somewhere with heaven on the doorpost. So what are our worldviews to which we could maybe connect this? I think one of the most significant things that many people in our lives do believe about the world can be captured in what's called a materialistic worldview. Materialistic, not meaning like, I believe life is all about getting more stuff, but rather meaning matter, physical stuff, is the fundamental thing. And everything, including our consciousness and our emotions and our relationships, everything can be understood as a result of physical, material interactions. In, in a sense, a lot of people in our modern world believe science is ultimately going to answer every single one of our questions. But for people of faith, for me, I don't buy it. For me, when I think about the reality of my consciousness, the ability to have purpose and will and intention, the ability to love and experience compassion and, and experience great acts of self-sacrificial love, I find myself thinking, I don't think the physical world explains it all. There must be something more. When I hear this idea that Jesus is seated in heaven, it says to me that this kingdom of Christ we're pursuing most definitely includes, but also goes far beyond just the material world. And this material world we live in can dominate all of our attention all the time because there's plenty of interesting stuff to look at, plenty of important things to pay attention to. But I think... This opening, beautiful, dense passage 
from the pastor is an invitation for us to say this. We know that we can give our time and our energy and our attention to all sorts of things. But week after week after week, when we gather on Sundays and we keep reading the words of this pastor, reading the exhortations that this pastor gave to that community, I'm going to summarize it by saying there's one challenge and invitation that can summarize all of them together, and that is the invitation to be people who don't let all of our attention get bogged down by the world around us, but rather we are people who remember to look up. Remember that whatever we're looking at, there's something more than just what we see, something which is no less than God himself right here in our midst. The question as always is, what are we going to do about it? What's your move going to be? And I'm going to start by mentioning two that we mentioned last week. Um, First, make a plan. If you hired yourself to be the employee in charge of your own personal faith and character and life development and formation, how long would you keep your job? Make a plan. If we know we're easily distracted people, just like Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, then let's make a plan for how we can keep our lives focused on Christ in and out of every season. And we've got, a, I think, a phenomenal opportunity. It's called the Growth Challenge. It's 16 weeks of getting intentional, making a plan for yourself, and then carrying it out in community. I'd encourage you to consider signing up. Second, we talked about make it count. Make this church family a hub at the center of your life. We've got a number of ministries that you can get involved in. There's QR codes for both registering for ministries and taking, uh, signing up for the Growth Challenge out in the Welcome Center. Um, don't miss the chance at the beginning of the school year when we're all getting into new rhythms, new habits, new patterns. Don't miss the chance to get intentional about how to keep your own life focused on the God who is with us. And as a closing illustration, I want to talk for just a second about gorillas. Um, Obviously, I know that's what you were expecting. Um, I was reading this study, and I just, it was fantastic. Um, And and here's here's the experiment that some researchers did. They brought, you know, one by one, they brought a person into a room, did this with a few hundred people, a couple hundred people. And they'd sit them down, and they'd put them in front of a little, uh, black and white TV screen. He said, okay, here's your job. On the screen, there's a group of people wearing white t-shirts, and there's a group of people wearing black t-shirts. And each group has a ball, like a basketball or like a rubber bouncy ball. And and the groups are going to be passing the ball back and forth. You must count how many passes the white shirt group makes and the black shirt group makes. That's what you got to do. You know, so people sit down. All right, come on, we got it. One by one, they come in, they sit down, and they, they watch the video, about a five-minute video, and they come out, and the researcher, you know, clipboard in hand, white lab coat, um, pencil, starts asking questions. First question, did you see anything unexpected? Did you see anything unexpected? Over 70, I think it was like 75% of the people said, no, I, I didn't see anything unexpected. Um, and then they start asking I don't, three or four other questions on the same theme. 
Did anything out of place show up on the screen? Did you notice anything unusual? Like variations of the same theme of this question. Anything unexpected? And, and each time a few more people answered, yeah, I saw something. But it wasn't until the last question that the light bulb went on for a number of participants. They asked the question, did you see a gorilla? Which was an unexpected question. See, while they were watching the screen and the individuals were passing the basketball, a human in a big gorilla suit walked onto the middle of the screen in the middle of the basketball passing, stood there staring straight at the camera for a few seconds, four or five seconds, and then walked off the screen. And when the researchers asked, did you see a gorilla? Half of the people said, no. I did not see a gorilla. And they went back and played the video, and they're like, how did I not see the gorilla? And they repeated this experiment time and time again with many different variations, and what they found out is more or less, if you give somebody something to focus on, it's amazing how much they will completely miss even when it stares them right in the face. Turns out, it takes a lot of energy to focus our attention. So as we go into this next season of life, here's what I know. Um, We're probably going to be looking at, and maybe challenges or opportunities might come up that we're not only looking at, but we just get focused on, for better or for worse, right or wrong, but the fact of the matter is, if, if, we're not atten- if we're not intentional about this all, we could fall into the same trap as the people in this little study. See, because when our attention is entirely consumed by the realities of the world around us, whether or not they're good and helpful things or painful and damaging things, if our attention's entirely consumed, we can entirely miss, easily miss, the reality of God with us. Even when God is obviously right here in our midst. Like the ancient Jews who knew God's revelation and yet had forgotten that Christ was the center of it all. What is it for you? What's the thing that is taking up so much of your heart and so much of your mind that you forget to look up and remember the God whose love can radiate in and through your life as well. Would you pray with me? God, I I, I truly, I hope and I pray that we are a community that daily remembers that you are here, you are with us, you are in our midst and actively at work. God, I thank you for the ways that you have been at work, not just in our lives as individuals, in our life as a community, but God, you've been at work for millennia, speaking and giving light and life and hope. And I pray that all of the stories of your work in the past would lead us to find you now in our presence, present and pursue you in the future. May it be so that we constantly are just caught up in wonder, in awe, in amazement at you, the God who is so much more than just what we can see day to day, the God who truly is a light shining into every dark space. 
And we pray this all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.